The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Kids, quit trying to finger zoom your lightsaber and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 473 with guest Joel Semeniuk, recorded live Monday, February 16th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering .NET Nuke video training with Chris Hammond from Engage Software on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine. The leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who went to Miami to hunt mosquitoes for food, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin in New London, Connecticut. Richard is out there in Vancouver. He'll be here in just a minute. No real intro today, no emails, no better no framework. We're just going to roll a show that we recorded quite a while ago with Joel Semeniuk, a discussion about uh, Team System. Joel Semeniuk is our guest. He's a founder of Imaginet Resources Corporation, a Canadian-based Microsoft Gold partner. He's also a Microsoft Regional Director and has a degree in computer science from the University of Manitoba. Joel has spent the last 12 years providing educational development and infrastructure consulting services to customers throughout North America. Uh, Joel specializes in helping organizations realize their potential through maturing their software development and information technology practices. Welcome, Joel. Hey, guys. Good to be on. Good to have you back. You betcha. We're talking about Team System today, are we not? Absolutely. Because there's been some new developments since show 328, which was March uh, uh, March 27th of last year. Has it been that long? It has. It has been that long. You've been doing a bunch of uh, talks with Steve Forte, sort of the agile panel kind of thing, or is it more lifecycle management? Well, we kind of, uh, we talk about processes in general. So what Steve and I like to, to talk about is uh, specifically Scrum, but we also kind of like to open up the bigger picture into something called application lifecycle management, which is, you know, how do we develop software? Are there right. better ways? Yeah. You know, it's not just about sitting down and writing code and, and you know, hitting that F5 key. It's, there's, there's lots of other parts to it, right? 
So there's a, you know, the, there's a lot of conversation going on, not just in the .NET community, but, you know, software development community wide about, about processes and about uh, tools and ways that people can do things. What is your, what's your basic philosophy, if you have one, if you could sum it up? Uh, basic philosophy number one, eliminate waste. That's kind of the key of what we of what we go for, and that's kind of where, where, where when Steve and I start talking about Scrum, we, we talk we, we really like Scrum. Scrum is a great um, um, framework for developing software, especially with teams. And, and really, if you kind of unpackage Scrum in all of its uh, you know all of its glory, you ha- you have kind of the foundations of eliminate waste. Um, one of the things that we find wasteful is uh, is transferring information from one group to another. Um, in, in you know things like email or, or documents. So what Scrum promotes are things like high bandwidth communications, uh, being able to get the information you need when you need it while you're developing the software. So lots and lots of different aspects around um, you know how we can eliminate waste uh, when we develop software. You know one of the things that I always ask my customers is, well, how many bugs are you going to have in your next project? They look at me and they go, I don't know. Well, exactly. So. Would you consider fixing bugs wasteful? And they go, no, you need to fix bugs. I'm like, well, well, really, what if you didn't have bugs? Well, that would be great. So bugs are wasteful, right. Uh, and you can't estimate how many bugs you have or the impacts you know, they're going to have on your, on your system. So what can we do to try to eliminate bugs? Well, we can try to add more quality to our processes as we're developing software, and that's with, you know, when it, when it comes to code quality. There's lots of stuff we can do there or requirements quality or communication quality. There's lots of things that we focus on when we work with customers to try to eliminate waste by introducing more quality, hence team system. So um, a little history here. A lot, of, a lot of great tools and practices have come up through the Java space and then turned into tools and practices uh, over in the .NET space. Um, Microsoft Visual Studio is a great uh, a great sort of platform for plugging in lots of great tools and in, in using these methodologies. And Team System took it so far, but you know Microsoft doesn't release a new version of Team System every every month, and it seems like there's new tools and and things coming out all the time. Where are we now with Visual Studio Team System, the latest release here? First of all, what is it? When is it? And and what's uh, what, what what do we get that we have been waiting for? These are some big questions, my friend. Well, we're still in the version of Team System uh, 2008, and when you, you know, when you look at the word Team System, it's really broken down into two components. One is the the, the, the server side tools, which help us track defects and do automated builds, and it's our version control system, and I can go on quite a bit in that area. But it's also our client side tools, which help us as team members be more productive. So we have more tools for helping us analyze and design um, our, our solutions. We have tools for developers for allowing us to write better code or check to see if there's problems with their code earlier than later. We also have tools for da- uh, uh, database developers, you know, using the same uh, goodness that we would have while we're writing .NET code, such as unit testing and uh, um, testing frameworks, and, and apply that to um, our database. Uh, we also have additional tools for testers themselves. Uh, being able to write load tests and web tests and so forth. So we have a lot of these extra tools that are there to help us introduce quality throughout our development processes. And again, it's way better to find those problems early in the software development process than later. So these tools are going to help enable our teams, in fact, do just that. 
However, with the 2008 uh, release, we have some really nice things that have just happened. Um, late in the game, there is this extra uh, addition to the family called Team System for Database Developers that was originally its own separate product or something that you could get when you buy the Team Suite, which is the collection of all the different roles, uh, that be uh, Team Architect, Team Developer, uh, Team Tester, and Team Database Developer. What they've decided to do is actually combine uh, team developer and uh, team system for database professionals together, uh, which is just a fantastic value that we get. Um, and one of the other things that I really love about the team, uh, the team system group itself, is they release out-of-band uh, value off onto the side under a separate banner called Power Tools. So as you know, they start developing and thinking about, boy, you know, we have a little gap in this area. Um, they would actually develop it as a power tool and release it for you know free of charge for you to kind of use on the side. You know, for for example, one of the things that is released as a power tool is something called the process template editor. And the process template editor allows organizations to kind of go in and go and customize something called a process template, which is a declaration of the processes that you would follow inside a particular team project. So that's again released out of band and kind of continually adds value to the entire suite uh, as it matures. So with something like that, that template editor, you're really sort of describing the idea that that customers can, can change the process the way they want to. I mean, obviously, you talked about Scrum. Scrum can be incorporated in a team system? Absolutely. I mean, team system isn't there to, to, to decide what practices are good or what practices are bad. It's really up to the organization and to the teams themselves. And so the, the, the whole heart of team system is for it to be customizable or adaptable into a different environment. So you can go and get um, a process template um, outside of Microsoft, and one of the best Scrum process templates that you can get is from a company called Conchango, um, probably the most mature process template for Scrum for team system that you can get. And again, it's free. And you can install that into your team system environment and start using Scrum. But as you mature your processes, you might also want to change um, certain workflows, for example. Maybe you might want to have um, a product backlog, for example, go through a, a set of different steps than what the Conchango uh, product backlog would recommend. So, But if this makes sense for your organization and if this is going to add value to the organization, you should have all the tools available for you to do this. And this is why customization of the process templates are, are, are a really good thing. Now, out of the box, you actually get two process templates. One's called MSF um, for Agile, and one's called MSF for CMMI Process Improvement. Uh, one, uh, I mean, both are based on Agile principles, which are highly iterative, you know, release often um, type of uh, mindsets. But the MSF for CMMI is a, has a bit more ceremony, I guess you can you can think of. But what we're finding with customers is they they'll take one of those two templates and they'll customize it using the process template editor to kind of make it their own, uh, which is really quite the, the, the power that, that that Team System provides for you is the customization aspect. And by the way, if uh, if you want to read the Agile Manifesto, it's at agilemanifesto.org. Are you a big fan of the whole Agile thing, Joel? That's the, the way you want to work? No, um, Agile. Uh, I love Agile. However, I think a lot of people uh, misunderstand what Agile is, or maybe misinterprets what the Agile Manifesto talks about. I, we actually did a, a session in Barcelona at, at TechEd this past year that was, uh, is Agile an excuse or a process? 
And it was a fantastic discussion because what we're finding is that a lot of organizations think that Agile is uh, an excuse not to write documentation or an right. excuse not to do uh, requirements gathering in any form or an excuse not to be disciplined other than the discipline of a developer. You know, all of the roles are meaningless except for the role of the developer. And that's that's not at all what Agile means. Um, so, you know, am I a big fan of Agile? Absolutely. I'm just not a fan of what Agile has maybe been mis- misinterpreted as. Um, for me, Agile is about high bandwidth teams, being able to work seamlessly with my users and the rest of my team in a very, very high bandwidth manner. So I promote things like, you know, working in closed quarters, uh, close quarters with, with the rest of your team, having uh, free and ultimate access to your users as much as humanly possible, and to know that you're not going to be able to gather all of the requirements up front uh, and that things will change, as a matter of fact. Um, agile doesn't mean don't write any docs, um, you know, and, and, don't, and, and don't track anything and, and use sticky notes or, uh, you know, a build bunny, which is, you know, a bunny rabbit that you could put on top of your cubicle when you're actually doing the build. I mean, there's a lot of organizations who think that that is Agile, but to me that's just one aspect of Agile that might not work for different organizations. You may think that the Agile Manifesto is this long diatribe, you know, a.k.a. You know, the last time I heard the word manifesto besides code camp manifesto was uh who was that guy who locked himself in a cabin and said let the unabomber you know it's like you know it's not a long thing it's actually very short and simple um individuals and interactions over processes and tools working software over comprehensive documentation customer collaboration over contract negotiation responding to change over following a plan and then there are 12 principles of agile software, but that's it, right? And but what there's been a lot of mis- misinterpretation. Well, obviously, because it's something that's you know, it's very. It, it, I can't say that it's it's really vague, but it is in a way. It is kind of vague. You know, there aren't any specifics there. Well, and that's interesting, and that's why I've been working a lot with uh, lean uh, principles. Uh, lean has a few more very specific principles that are considered to be agile in nature as well. And Lean actually came out of the manufacturing industry, and it was all about trying to eliminate waste as well as to focus on process improvement um, from the manufacturing perspective. And that's morphed over the years, uh, and a lot of the Lean principles that, that have been established years ago still apply to, to software development. Um, and again, when we, when we start looking at some of the key principles of, of elimination of waste, there's so much that we can do and so much that we see in the Agile Manifesto that is reflective of that. I mean, what, what the Agile Manifesto says when they say individuals and interactions over processes and tools is kind of what I mentioned about before. I mean, I want to have high bandwidth between the people in my team. That's where we're going to get the most flow of information. When every time we start to, to take, try to take that information and represent it as a document or something that is used to transfer that information between team members, we're losing a lot of the intent. So the interaction is absolutely key between my users and the rest of my team. But what the Agile Manifesto doesn't say is don't use processes or tools. It's, and that. that would be a misinterpretation right there. Exactly. Because you have to use tools. And, and, and I don't even see that these things are you have to choose one over the other. That's why it's kind of strange to see this over that, where if you have to choose between a tool and an interaction, do you, do you ever have to do that? 
Well, you know, sometimes uh, we've seen organizations silo their teams into different roles, and this is where we start seeing this, is that as a, as a, as a project might grow in complexity, what they'll do is they'll put BAs and you know, business analysts in, in one bucket, and they'll put developers in another bucket and put my, my testers over there, and then we force users to communicate with our BAs who gather the documents, who have to write all the docs, and uh, put, you know, transfer them via, you know, via email or by SharePoint or something like that to my developers, and my developers are supposed to get the intent of what they're trying to build. And this is where we'll start to see, you know, how we can use some of these principles to change that organization. So instead of using document to communicate between my, my, uh, my team members, what I do is change how my teams are organized and instead have feature teams where on my feature team I'd have a business analyst a developer, a user, testers, so that we're all working together in much closer quarters. Um, so that's kind of how that manifesto can guide how some of those decisions should be made. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik, without whose support this show surely would not exist. You know, summer is peaking, and our friends at Telerik are working full steam. They've just released the Q2 volume of the Telerik Premium Collection for .NET, which is their biggest release yet. Packed with new things, it'll surely excite anyone who has anything to do with .NET development. Let's start with Silverlight and the introduction of the first commercial 3D chart on the market. It is developed as True Vector 3D, which guarantees swift performance and rich capabilities like rotation, animations, etc. Another major announcement is the Telerik Silverlight Scheduler, which is packed with tons of features, even in the first version. Telerik's flagship, RAD Controls for ASP.NET Ajax, grows not only with four new controls, but also with new productivity tools. Take the new Visual Style Builder, an online application that allows you to visually modify skins or design new ones with point and click. And if that's not enough, they've added a completely new product, a free testing framework powered by Art of Test for automating Ajax and Silverlight rich internet applications. Since I'm short on time here, I can't enumerate all the new features and enhancements in the Telerik reporting, open access ORM, and their Windows Forms products, so I'll leave it for you to check them out at Telerik.com. And don't forget to say thank you for supporting .NET Rocks. So sort of digging back into the tooling side of this, I mean, how much of this is just interaction between people and, and what do you have to capture in the tool to, to be successful? Well, I mean, so much of it is interaction with, with the customer. I mean, when, when you want to write great software, you need to kind of figure out what you're writing first. And that's the, probably the biggest part, the biggest challenge with any software development project is writing the right software. Now, uh, Team System... Um, doesn't really have tools yet. Uh, in 2010, they've, they are introducing more requirements management and more uh, requirements modeling tools in the form of UML into their suite. But in 2008, today, we don't have a lot of uh, tools that will help us kind of gather those requirements. We have the concept of a work item inside a team foundation server, which will allow us to track that. You know, once we decide that uh, a system must implement a particular feature, we can track that as a work item and we can schedule it and assign it to someone. But there's not really any requirements management pieces in the product yet. Really where the tool kicks in is when you start the construction processes, when we actually think as developers about the tools we need um, you know, in our toolkit to start building what we you know, think we should be building at that particular point. That's where the team system really starts coming alive in the 2008 version. I mean, here's an example. Um, you know, in, one of, in the developer's queue, we have the concept of 
of um, code analysis. And code analysis is essentially just a set of rules that will go through your code and look for different patterns. Um, and, and you can choose which, whether or not you'd like to have those patterns break your build or not. So, for example, you can have rules that kind of govern um, uh, different design patterns in your code that you don't are not acceptable or design patterns that might not be uh, well used for multilingual, multilingual applications. And you can have those rules kind of fire every single time you compile. Now, what that does is it doesn't eliminate a code review process, but it sure helps a whole lot, right? Because every time I compile and if I have a couple hundred rules going through my code looking for things that are not acceptable for my organization, I'll get to fix those earlier than later. Uh, and again, that's all about eliminating waste. But they, you mean, I, I feel like you go too far with the rules, too. I like the idea that we have fewer and fewer bugs by putting more and more process in. But isn't there a point where the process is taking longer than the bug fix would? Well, you know what? Um, I'd have to argue that sometimes that's a good thing. A lot of uh, organizations say, well, we'll, we're just losing velocity. We're not developing as fast as we would um, if we didn't have these processes in place. I mean, we're having all these rules break down and developers are having to go and fix them before we can promote them to a build. Yeah, and therein lies the problem with rules. Right, but, but... I asked them, well, that's, that's good because that's a predictable estimate. You know, I'm replacing something in my project schedule that is more predictable than something that is unpredictable, which is, okay, I need to get this thing out to production, but I have 45 bugs left, you know, critical bugs left to fill. Um, how, you know, how long is it going to take me to fix that? Well, much longer and unpredictably. So I promote, you know, slowing things down and having a much more predictable development route and trying to have these rules kind of fire earlier than later so we can deal with them um, and then fix them right away before having this pile of bugs that, that you know, have to get fixed before I actually go out to production, which is unpredictable. Sometimes I wonder if you could sort of boil all this down to two words, which is critical thinking. You know, you really have to, I mean, once you, once you like, put the rules up on the wall and say we will never waver from these rules, well, you know, there are situations that rules don't apply to. So you always have to, these are great guidelines. And they're, they're great ideals. But um, you, when you're thinking your way out of a problem, you certainly, I mean, that's what you're doing all the time is thinking your way out of a problem. There's always a balance, right? And, and that's why the rules that we have inside a team system for the code, code analysis, for example, are customizable. We can choose to ignore them if we want. We can, we can um, you know, narrow down the set of rules that, you know, these are the absolute you know, rules. If we break those, then we have to break our build. But all the rest could be optional. So we have a lot of ability to customize that from a team perspective, which is something that I, I promote. I never promote going in and turning in, turning in all those rules for a team that has never done this before. Let's start with finding those one or two rules that really cause, you know, if, if, if we fix those problems earlier, that would really save us a lot of time and money. <laughs> Let's turn those on first uh, and then slowly increment you know, which rules we want to enable throughout our code analysis process. Yeah, I think that the last, uh, the last uh, tenant of the manifesto is probably the biggest one, responding to change over following a plan. Plans are great, but it's change, well, and you need you know, to respond and, to and, and again, the misinterpretation there is don't plan. Right. Um, no, you, and, have, to have, a, you have to have a plan. You've got to have a plan. It's just expected to change. Right. You have um, to change the plan. Absolutely, and, uh, and and expect the plan to be wrong. It's it's more than likely always going to be wrong. But 
And that's where the the sort of agile comes from, is is you're nimble, you're on your feet, you're being able to change direction when required. But that doesn't mean you never replan either. One part of all of an agile team is is really kind of replanning all the time. Planning isn't something you do at the very beginning of a project, it's something that you do every single day. And that's what... And that's what scrums help you do. Absolutely. So every single day when you, you, when you get with your team together for that stand-up scrum, you're in effect planning. You're declaring what you're going to be doing you know, for that next chunk of time, usually a day, and kind of reflecting on what you did over that last chunk of time and declaring what things are going to get in your way. And you're really kind of trying to be nimble on your feet. And also for a particular sprint, you do have a sprint plan. You do have a a plan that you you know at the very beginning of the sprint you get together with your team and your customers saying what you know let's just confirm what we're doing this this month or this sprint or however long your sprint is um, but you, you do have a plan and and that I think comes to the to the unit testing aspect of the tool now uh, when team system was launched unit testing was actually part of the team system SKU in order to actually do unit testing in the product you needed to get uh, team system for uh, developers. Uh, today, unit testing has been moved down to Visual Studio Professional, which is great news, right? Unit testing, I think we're, we're basically saying now that all developers uh, who are using Visual Studio Professional you know, should be unit testing. And I think that's one of the biggest shift that's, shifts that we're seeing in the industry right now as well, is that unit testing are becoming first-class citizens. They're not something that... that you know, that crazy TDD, you know, test-driven development group over there is doing. It's something that the entire organization is starting to embrace. Uh, and again, there's writing some, some code that verifies that some other code is, in fact, working. Um, and we've seen that we've coached a lot of organizations through this mindset shift of going from not writing any unit tests to writing uh, unit tests incrementally. And, and when we talked about velocity before, the biggest impact that we saw on most of our customers is that they had lower velocity when it comes to delivering features because our, essentially our developers are having to write twice as much code. They're writing functional code and code that tests that functional code. But the result is, is that black hole of bugs goes down and we become yep. more predictable. It certainly does. So you adding more time up front to save time in the back. Not just saving time, but just saving, saving the unknown. I call it, uh, on my blog, I talk a little bit about it uh, called the, the black hole effect. And, you know, every project has a black hole of defects, and we don't know what's in that black hole. We can't predict it. You know, we might look back on our previous project and say, well, on that project, it took us 15% extra to do our bugs. But on this project, we're using, you know, WPF instead of WinForms, or we're using a brand new technology. Maybe we're developing something for Windows 7 now. It's, it's very hard to be predictable in any way in terms of the impact of the defects on your project. And it, yeah, that seems to be the big pain point here more than anything. It's just managing defects and and making it easy to to manage those. I mean, so let's you know tie this back to the team system tool as well. So in my in team um, Visual Studio for, for testers, we have some additional uh, test types. And one of our test types is a web test, right? So a web test allows me to go in and uh, basically launch a browser and start clicking around, and it will record exactly what's happening when I'm, when I'm clicking. So it's not only recording the fact that I made the click on a certain control on a website, but it's also going to record all that information that was sent to the, uh, through the browser to the website, 
and all the information that was returned back as a result of that click. Then I can take that and I can run that test over and over and over again to make sure that that particular piece of functionality is in fact um, intact, build for, after build after build. Now, more importantly, I can actually even have some additional validation rules that I can sprinkle across that particular web test. Uh, on some of the websites that we write as an organization, we are told that we have to have a page load time of at least, you know, sub two seconds. Uh, two seconds seems to be that magical rule. That's okay. <laughs> we, can, uh, we can sprinkle validation rules inside of our web test that says, you know what, fail this test if that website does not load within two seconds. And what's great about having this automated test is that I can include it as part of my daily build so that, you know, every day I'll know right away if something has gone askew with regards to performance of my system or if I've broken some functional aspect of my website um, by doing some new part of my website, which happens all the time. Um, That's the other thing I think that people miss on the testing element is this going forward not being afraid of your old code or of damaging the old code. The tests will show where you broke something. Isn't that an interesting concept? I mm. call that the safety net effect. I don't know about you. Have you ever gone into a brand new um, project and you're the new guy, right? And and it's a big project and they and they say, okay, you're going to go and modify this component now. I'm like, great, excellent. But now you're scared, right? What happens if I blow something up bad and you're not familiar with the rest of the system? Wouldn't it be great if I had an isolated area, you know, a little a little sandbox that I can play in so that I can make a change, find out if I've blown anything up before I actually check it back into version control. Mm. And that's kind of where we're at with all these tests, these automated tests that we put in place with our project. They become the scaffolding for the building. They become the safety net for our developers. And they give us more confidence in order to make change. So back to that agile manifesto, right? We want to respond to change. Right. But... Sometimes when we have an architecture that we might not be familiar with or might be delicate, change might be harder than you think. So by having a safety net, it allows us to actually make the change and be confident that the change we made didn't blow up seven or eight other things. Um, and that's really important as well to be, especially in, in these type of economic times. I mean, we're finding a lot of organizations really trying to do a lot more with less. And the concepts of, you know, reducing waste are, are really coming back to the forefront. And, you know, talk about Agile. It certainly makes it easy to to modify and to add features once you have, you know, once you have all those tests in place and, and everything's working in the build, then, uh, then, it, then it is otherwise. It's all, and it's always the, especially if you're using processes of decoupling and, and um, I, you know, a separation of concerns and things like that. You know, well, while it might be a little bit more, a little bit more work to implement a particular feature because you have to set everything up right, it's going to work by the time you're done. Well, and also having um, you know a good testable piece of software likely means you've architected it really well too. Um, so what what we've found is a natural uh, when we think about how to test pieces of our software, it naturally leads to uh, a good decoupling of the system and and better and better ways of actually structuring the, or the system as a whole. Um, so it, it, it forces us to think in a different way, uh, and, and, and in a better way that will lead to, uh, you know, to be able to change in the future even, even further. But uh, I think the database developer um, skew for Team System has really made a big impact with a lot of customers as well. Um, for a long time, 
uh, Richard, you can probably attest to, attest to this as well. The, the, the sequel guys kind of were over there. You know, every right. time you had to write sequel scripts or uh, update scripts or um, or anything fancy, they had to run in their own little sandbox, and they they truly weren't integrated with the rest of the version control uh, system that the rest of our developers were using. Um, so Microsoft kind of came along and said, "Wouldn't it be great if a database developer was a first-class citizen?" And when we're working against SQL 2000 all the way through the 2008, they could write unit tests against their SQL um, store procedures, for example, or work in a sandbox version of their SQL environment and deploy scripts as you would deploy code or websites and, and be much more of uh, part of that managed infrastructure and, and also connect to the version control system, right? <laughs> so when we're making changes to our, our database structure or if we're refactoring some of our stored procedures, for example, that's you know that's just what developers do, and we're using you know we're using our underlying version control system to help manage this change. Uh, the best whammy I've ever seen on this is uh, a rollback. You ship a version, something bad got through, and now you've got to go back to a previous version. And rolling back a database to a previous version—that's a nightmare. Because the database is always a delta, right? You never just, it's not like code where you just deploy the new version. You always have existing data and you actually have to do scripts to modify the data structures to have the new database form there, migrate the data across automatically. Roll that back, baby. And that's, you know, for me, that's the biggest thing I found with the, with the database team systems queue was that I could say, Here's the existing database. Here's the database I want. Write me the scripts. And you can also, then we generate the scripts going the other way. So if we did need a rollback, you just run this script to undo it. And it's way less manual than you can ever imagine that actually being. Uh, imagine that being, you know, pre-database professional, how much work that would actually be to do that. Well, we used to, I used to, have to buy third-party tools for this, right? Like very, a very bunch of them. Very, third-party tools. Yeah. And I guess the other thing that Microsoft recognized right away was that as, as a .NET developer, it's very hard to distinguish a person who just writes .NET code from a person who, you know, touches the database and, and makes modifications to the schema. And I think that uh, them combining the different SKUs, the, the database developer as well as the developer SKU together into one really made a lot of sense because that's, that's how most of uh, the teams that I work with work. It's very rare that you just have a, a DBA group that is just doing all that stuff. They're really kind of an integral part of your team. And it also supports a much more agile team model, where in an agile team you'll have much more cross-disciplinary skills. It's very rare that you'll just say, you know, I'm just a web guy or uh, a web GUI guy on an agile team. More than likely, you, you're able to kind of touch a whole different um, uh, different parts of the uh, the system architecture when you're working on an agile team. Well, is this just a real recognition of the idea that there's a database developer who's separate from a database administrator? Although sometimes it's the same guy, but they're distinctly different roles. Exactly. I think from a database administrator perspective, they're more concerned about the holistic picture of how the server's running, how the you know the performance, the availability of it, making sure that that data is going to be there when it needs to be there. You know, I don't think the uh, the traditional DBA um, want, you know, obviously they're concerned about the rules and procedures and how to interact with the database, hence, you know, the rollback concerns and, you know, always deploying update scripts and so forth. Right. But 
you know, being part of the agile team, which is developing the business solution that's worried about the schema and what the schema looks like and how that matches with the code and how we're, you know, and how we're writing unit tests to validate different store procedures. I think the DBA wants to know that that stuff is being done, but the database developer is much more in tune with that particular set of activities. Well, just this idea that the changes to the database are part of the deployment package of the version of the app. That, to me, has always been impossible. Well, and it's and it also allows us from a you know from a project management perspective to also get a, a much kind of a, a, more, a more holistic view. Here's what I mean by that: as a as a project manager in in team system, I use uh, things called work items to track what needs to get done by when. Right. I have a whole bunch of different types of work items, and one of those types of work items is a task, and you can also have a bug, or a requirement, or a feature, however you want. You can create your own, as, as a matter of fact, but um, what we really want is everybody coming from the same task bucket so I can kind of understand what everybody's doing at any given time. And one of the great things that we have for developers is on the check-in operation, so as soon as I'm checking in code, I can have a dialog box come up and say, you must associate this with work, right, with a task, with a, with a requirement or with a bug. Essentially, it gives us a, a traceability between the work that we have, you know, said we have to do with the work that we've done. Right. And it's, and it's much better than having to go back through a massive task list and checking off the tasks that you've done that you know that you've done that week. This is kind of more real time, and it's also contextual with, from a developer's perspective, the code they just wrote. Um, but with the now with the, the database developer um, kind of coming into play, we can also now track um, the associations between that work, you know, stored as work items, and the the, the associated database activities, which is. Fantastic. We get a much better, bigger, holistic picture of what's going on on my team when we get everybody using the same bucket. So how do these, all these tasks get created? Is this sort of the, the, the anchor point of getting successful with Studio? Is what tasks do you need to make and how? Well, we, we found that from an adoption perspective of team system, people actually start using it from a version control system and an automated build system uh, more than a work tracking system. They end up maturing into a, hey, this does bug tracking as well. And then what they'll do is they'll start tracking their defects. And then they go, hey, we can start tracking tasks in here. And, and they start kind of, kind of coming to the realization that they can track whatever the heck they want in here. Um, and they can use as many tools as they want to, to track that information. The most common tool that's out there today for tracking for adding stuff to work items is Microsoft Excel, which is what most teams are using today anyway for tracking stuff. How do you um, use Excel for this? Excel is, is it, what, when you install team, the team suite uh, on your computer, it installs um, add-ins for Excel that allow it to talk directly to Visual Studio or team system. So right from an Excel, I can actually say, you know what, create a brand new team system list. And, you know, it's going to be a type task list and start entering tasks right inside of the cells in, in, in Excel. And you have round tripping. So as soon as I publish my tasks to team system and if someone added more tasks that were assigned to me, for example, I can suck those back into Excel as well and see all the changes back and forth. So, and you can also do that through Microsoft Project. Uh, Project is another common tool that people use for updating team system work items as well. My biggest wow. concern with Project has always, whenever I've been working on an application where somebody was using Project, it was a dedicated job just to keep Project up to date. Um, 
I happen to have a lot of opinion on this. <laughs> I want to hear it, Joel. Hit me. Um, I wrote a book called Managing Projects with Team Systems for Microsoft Press, um, and uh, we kind of focused on how, you know, what are the different methods for project managers to use for managing team projects. And what we found in the book is that project um, seems to all have a bit of a mismatch when it comes to working with agile teams. And here's where I'm getting at. Inside of an Agile team, we have the concept of an iteration. It right. has a fixed amount of time, and it usually has a fixed amount of capacity. And then what I do is I try to schedule my work based on those couple different constraints. So I kind of use it as a bucket, and I dump the bucket into my barrel, and what I pull out is what I'm going to build for this particular iteration. With a Microsoft Project, it doesn't necessarily understand those buckets. right? It has the concept of summary tasks and roll-up tasks and and so forth, but it really doesn't have a doesn't have good mediums for you know having a fixed capacity, fixed duration iteration where I'm pulling and bucketing work into. And so right there, that makes it difficult to to really work in the same way you might have worked before in Microsoft Project, and because you have to work a little differently when you're inside of Team System, um, especially with Microsoft Project integration, um, and also um, Microsoft. Team system in 2008 doesn't have the concept of a hierarchical work item base, so I can't have a subtask of another task, for example. They're really just a flat list of tasks that are assigned to a category. And a Microsoft project, I can have a whole bunch of hierarchy and a whole bunch of extra information that my team system piece doesn't know about. And what we found is that a lot of customers really, especially those proficient in Microsoft project, struggle with having to use it the way that team system integrates with it well. Uh, and also, uh, organizations that are much more agile that just say, you know what, I've got a capacity, uh, let's say, uh, 120 working hours for my team, and I just want to use that as the size of my bucket and reach in and grab the highest priority features to build for the next sprint. It's hard to do that in Microsoft Project um, without some, some magical skills. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Joel, um, what's coming up in the next version of Team System that you know that you can talk about? And what this has a code name, right? Um, Rosario. It's a Rosario. And it seems like it's been in the works for a long time. It's been in the works, yeah. I mean, as soon as the team started releasing the first version of... Uh, 2005, the, the backlog began, right? That's when customers really started to give feedback of what they would like to see. Right. And Rosario is really going to be the next really fundamentally huge release for the product group. Uh, I'm really excited about it. In fact, we're, we've been wanting Rosario for the last two or three years. Right. Some really, you know, really cool features. One is hierarchical work items. Just the ability to have um, a tree of work items um, that link to one another in different ways. That's a very, very powerful tool, and, and I think that a lot of customers are going to be very, very relieved uh, in that particular feature. Um, there's also some additional testing tools. 
they have a brand new test tool called Kameno. And what Kameno is, is a WPF-based application that is really targeted towards manual testers. And what a manual tester is, is someone who basically writes test scripts for an application um, and will then go and manually execute those test scripts. One might be, you know, launch the application, you know, enter in the login credentials, and here, here they are. And you should expect to see the system say, login successful, for example, right? So they run through these test scripts over and over again. So it's a functional testing. Uh, yeah, it's from... a functional testing tool. Cool. But this tool actually does some really cool stuff. I mean, number one, um, we can, uh, it, it doesn't matter what we test with it. We can test web apps. We can test um, uh, WPF um, clients. It, it doesn't really matter. But while we're executing our test scripts, we enter in this particular mode, and we can record a whole lot of information about what's happening with the application while I'm running the test scripts. And one of the things is video. So let's say that I'm going through and I find a bug, and I can say, oop, that's a bug. So right inside of the Camino, um script player, I can actually say file bug, and I can include all this type of information. One of the, you know, I can include a video of what was happening when I found the bug. So it makes a screen video of of your interaction with uh, the app. Absolutely. Wow. I mean, think about that from a developer perspective That's when they huge. want to reproduce the bug, right? It's huge. Because instead of, well, you know, what were you doing when you did this? I don't know. Right. I Just watch. Can't remember. Yeah. Well, yeah, I know, you know the person in the office you want this for, right? Oh, yeah. That real high-maintenance personality who's got nothing but bad things to say about your app, but never, you know, you can't ever box them into what was it. But by the same token, Richard, now, I mean, you know, more people will be willing to look at the, the bug because it just takes less. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. So just watch this. Exactly. And well, we also record um, system information as well, like what platform we found it on. So before, you'd have to fill out all that stuff manually. You know? Yeah, right. And, and now it's just, you know, as, as a bug filer, I just say, I found a bug. And I can put some additional metadata, but all that extra state information is stored along with the bug. So the developer who, who gets assigned to this bug really has a huge amount of context available for them to help debug this. That's awesome. Another new feature inside of uh, 2010 is something called historical bugging. Now, this came out of Microsoft Research, and it's just silly cool. I mean, have you ever wanted to, when a bug you know, occurred, wouldn't it be cool to be able to step through the code when the bug occurred, as if it were occurring right now? Yeah, you can do huh. that. Um, so the concept there is, is that someone files a bug and we grab all this information. Um, as a developer, we can get into a historical debug mode where I can actually look at the code and the state of the code and, and fast forward and, and rewind the execution of the, of that code, um, as if it was executing in the past. So it's a really, really powerful tools for developers to help, uh, not only isolate where those bugs are, but to really understand what was happening when that bug occurred from a visual perspective with the videos and from a state perspective, but also from a code perspective, uh, which is really, really essential. Yeah, how are we doing this now? Um, just, that, just that whole manual bug capture. Can, can, a, can a guy who's not part of the development team easily enter a bug into the system? What, do you, what I usually do is take a screenshot of it and then circle it, circle, you know, what what's wrong and point to the to the steps that I took. Yeah, I guess sure. the big thing is how do you report this stuff? Well, there's today we have um, Team System for Web Access. And Team System Web Access has an, a sub, uh, you know, a sub feature that allows uh, 
work item only entry. And this, and you actually don't need a team system license to go and enter in a new bug, which is really, really cool. And you have a web interface to do this. So what we've worked with organizations is to expose that little web interface. So when they file, you know, when our users find a bug, they can just go to that URL, file a new bug, and, you know, enter in all the descriptions of what had happened and when it happened and so forth, and then file it along with team system. And then the team would triage that information every morning. Oh, look, you know, a new bug, and then assign it to someone for, for, for further investigation. How did I not know about this feature? Is it new to 2008? Um, it is new to 2008, yeah. Wow. But that, I mean, that's always been the one of the complaints I had with Team System early on was this, unless you are paying for a license, there was really no way to get anything into the system. Right. Today, you can enter in a bug, and you can look at your bugs. I know it won't say a bug, so you can enter in a work item in general. Right. And you can look at your work items that you've entered. Uh, and that is something that you can do with the system for free. And I, and I like the fact that you hate calling it a bug because I've always found that, that bug tracking systems, team system or otherwise, end up being feature repositories too. Absolutely. Like it's just, that's where all that stuff ends up. Sure. It's hard for most, most users to understand where that line is. Yeah, yeah. What's the difference between a bug and a feature request? Yeah, exactly. No, it's a bug. No, I always needed that, but I didn't know it until right now. Yeah. And it's a bug that you didn't know that I needed it. <laughs> But yeah, the, the, the customer uptake on that is uh, is really phenomenal, and we've got a lot of really, really, really happy customers. And sometimes you have to do some funny things, like for example, in in Team System, you can declare what a bug looks like, how many fields it has, what the workflow uh, is 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 doing behind the scenes, and how many you know mandatory fields there are, and some of the defaults. But what we found is that we've had to create very, very simplistic bugs, um, uh, you know, three or four fields on a particular form that users would fill out. And what we'd have to do is actually create a little separate project. It's called a team project, right? Because team projects are different than Visual Studio projects because team projects really kind of, you know, they have the, the entire set of uh, collaboration artifacts that your entire team would work on. So we'd have to create a little team project that is really there as a bucket for users to submit their bugs in because we'd have to really simplify what those bugs look like. And then what we do is triage that separate bugs in, uh, bucket and then move them over into our real project where we'd add some additional data to it. Uh, you know, what build it was found in perhaps or what platform it was found in or, you know, breaking it down into to, to its various pieces. Um, and then we go and update the original bug once we actually have it fixed so that the user can see that, in fact, their bug did get fixed. Yeah. That, that, and that's a big thing is uh, I love this idea that the guy can report it and then see the progress without having to phone anybody. And uh, yeah, that to me is very powerful. Again, I'm thinking about, you know, when you were dealing with the turtle apps, there's always that guy that's sort of high maintenance about the app and, <laughs> and to keep that guy calm, to give him feeling like stuff's going on. Richard, have you had some interactions with that guy this week? Uh, you oh, seem to be really man. focused on that guy. <laughs> I'm a little focused on that guy at the moment. <laughs> But don't you, don't you also find, Joel, that the, the initial bug report you get is pretty vague, and you end up having to sort of add to it. And I've often found that that one work item then splits into three or four other ones. It always does. As, as a matter of fact, they, they could be describing a whole sequence of events and, and, and not the bug at all, <laughs> but, the, but the symptoms of another bug that they thought was there but isn't. It's really, it's, I see what you're saying, Richard, and it's very, sometimes it's, it's very interesting to work with customers. But that, I think, just kind of um, 
puts more emphasis on why we need to have really good feedback mechanisms um, that, that make what we're doing a bit more transparent. You know, the fact that they can, in fact, submit a bug and that they can see the state change from submitted to triage to in progress to fixed and will be available in the next build, you know. I think that's really important for, for customers to see that type of progress. It's not so much of a black hole anymore. It's, it's something much more collaborative, and they feel part of the process versus outside of the process and only seeing the results. Well, there's also that, you know, how many bugs have been declared not reproducible on my machine? <laughs> right. But just all those, the, you know, the, the other potential outcomes of, you know, we're not going to fix this. It doesn't make sense to fix it. Or, you know, it'll, it'll be carried to the next version. We're going to deal with it later. Well, reproduction of bugs is, is essential. I mean, most, most organizations know that in order to, to, to fix a bug, you should be able to consistently reproduce it. Right. And, and that's why some of these additional testing tools are so valuable. We're not relying upon the user's voice to find, help find the bug or even a screenshot because sometimes it's not even represented in a screenshot very well. It's we need to understand what's you know what's happening at the stack level. We need to understand what what goofy other you know what goofy service pack do they you know do they have on their system that's maybe interfering with this particular issue. Right. Um, we run into a, a customer before where we had this wild and wacky bug, and it came down to the fact that they didn't install a service pack for two years. Um, you know, so we actually decided not to fix the bug because the solution was. Well, it's not a bug. If you would have had the service back installed, it wouldn't have, would have been you know, fine. Would have been fine. I've, I've turned up one of those where where the app was deployed on a hundred machines and three of them didn't work. I was and you're and you're happy when it doesn't work on one machine because then you can blame the machine. But there were three that didn't work, and they were all traced back to uh, failed driver updates. And it was the same. They were all the same piece of hard machinery that we bought in the same batch. And it was, a, and it was that a driver couldn't install, and nobody had noticed that it never had installed, but it broke this app. Hey, Joel, what's the state of uh, unit testing software in Team System? Uh, the state in terms of it. What do you mean? Well, the the tool that's built into it, you know, N Unit. What both are usable, I suppose. Tell just tell us about what's available. Well, I mean, what we're finding is that organizations who are um, who are using Visual Studio Professional right now are in fact using um, the, the unit testing framework built into Visual Studio over NUnit these days. I think the fact that NUnit has gone a little stale with regards to uh, recent updates uh, and so forth, I think the, the, the other big aspect that what people want is tight integration with their builds um, and the ability to have the builds easily and automatically execute the unit tests, but also, more importantly, get the results of those unit tests and store them as part of build results. So you're starting to really kind of look at uh, and the need for a very, very tightly integrated um, set of, you know, test build type uh, features so that we mm-hmm. can get the right information. Now, we used to do a lot of work with, uh, with NUnit and in um, and, and cruise control and stuff in the, back end, in the back end to do automated builds. But to get that information flowing and getting it into a way that we can report on it and see trends, over time of different parts of our code and stability metrics and so forth was tough for us to do. In 2008, we also have some additional testing tools um, that, um, that uh, you know, are me- reflections of measurements of how well the code is written, for example. We have maintainability metrics that allow us to kind of pinpoint different areas of our code that might be more, you know, harder to maintain than others. 
Um, and again, sometimes having all of those statistics wrapped together and then integrated with an automated build solution is a very, very important piece to have. And that feedback mechanism that developers use um, become, uh, becomes very tight. So in my experience, my customer base, I, I's really, I haven't seen a lot of end unit um, uptake in the last, for sure, two years. Um, which is a good or bad thing, I'm not sure. And a lot of the tool that a lot of test first guys use is ReSharper. Yeah. Does that work well with the unit testing framework in uh, in Visual Studio? Um, I have customers that use ReSharper all the time still, um, and and still using Team System. There's there's nothing that prevents the two from working together. Um, yeah. The other uh, interesting thing that we see in 2010. Um, from a developer build perspective, you know, since we're on the topic, is the concept of a gated check-in. A gated check-in is, is really kind of cool. It essentially prevents you from checking in your code to the source code repository until you've done something called a gated check-in. And what that does is it runs the build or a particular build script on your computer, executes, you know, executes the unit test, makes sure that the build is successful. Ah, it is. Now you can check it in. Um, some really powerful stuff there when it comes to making sure that you're not breaking the bill, right? Because sometimes when you do a check-in, uh, organizations will uh, automatically initiate something called uh, 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 continuous integration build. So we don't want to break that build. You know, we want to make sure that that build works all the time. Um, so in order to, uh, to prevent that build from breaking, having that additional gated check-in will help make sure that, uh, again, we're not breaking the build at the end of the day when we're trying to get home. Joel, uh, we're just about to the end of the show. You want to, uh, do you have any other last minute things you want to mention, call outs or hi mom or anything else? Well, I think, you know, when, when, I, when I look at the whole aspect of tools and, and software development, I really try to promote that people look holistically at their processes. Uh, a single tool, you know, ReSharper, Team System, um, you know, whatever you choose is not going to solve the problem. You really have to take a step back and look at optimizing your whole, right? Looking at your your processes, breaking it down, and figuring it out how you're going to optimize your teams and how they work with one another. I think organizations that do that will will be on the right track for being able to uh, really fine tune their software development processes going forward. And I think Team System, if you're on the Microsoft platform, is really the the, the place you should start. All right, Joel Semenya, thank you very much. You guys. And uh, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a